And let's turn in our Bibles as we're seated to Genesis 47. We will be in part of Genesis 47 and then covering all of 48 as well. I am trying, uh, attempting seriously to, at this point, uh, regularly provide outline handouts for each sermon. The response has been such from folks uh, saying that uh, this really helps them follow along and come back to it later. So uh, there is one on the back table as usual, and you also have it in your email from last night if you're on the email list. It's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of Genesis. We've gone almost all the way through the book and almost all the way through the story of Jacob and his sons, particularly Joseph and Judah, uh, along with the rest. I'm titling this sermon, Egypt Salvation, and Joseph's inheritance. Now, we will cover verses 13 through uh, 31. Actually, I, I guess I'm, I'm focusing more on verses 13 through uh, about 26 or 28, depending how you count. We are covering that first section this morning, but I'm intentionally moving through it a little faster than the section that follows it. It's important we cover it briefly, but um, it's by nature, I think it is something we can cover briefly. Uh, as we get into chapter 48 and even the last verses of 47, the focus shifts more to Jacob and Joseph and to Joseph's sons. But in the beginning here, we see that uh, as Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and been reconciled to his brothers for what they did to him, 20-some years earlier, uh, Joseph is now the savior not only of Egypt, but of his family, of the promised line of offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a time of famine, but God sent Joseph, through evil circumstances, God sent Joseph ahead into Egypt to preserve life, to preserve a remnant for God's people in the earth. Uh, and so we saw that Joseph invited his father Jacob and the whole family, the whole tribe really, to come from Canaan into Egypt to be uh, to prosper actually during a time of famine under Joseph's care. They would be in the land of Goshen, which Pharaoh officially did grant to them, probably up in the northeast delta region of the Nile, some of the best land in Egypt, especially for those who had flocks and herds. Now, briefly, the narrative, the story, zooms out a bit to focus more on Joseph's interaction with the whole nation of Egypt, who were not God's people by covenant, and yet God provided blessing for the nations, even in this early way, through Joseph. So we're starting in verses 13 through 28. Joseph saves the Egyptians from the prolonged famine. We've seen how Joseph saved his family from the famine. Now it kind of rounds this out, talking about how Joseph saved Egypt. And first of all, verses 13 through 26, Joseph shows wisdom and mercy in providing for the destitute Egyptians. He shows wisdom and mercy as he provides for the Egyptians who are destitute because of the famine. Let's just read a good section here, verses 13 through 26, before commenting on it. So starting in verse 13, Genesis 47. Now there was no food at, in all the land. 
for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, by the way, indicating Pharaoh's influence, uh, at least during this time in the land of Canaan as well. He gathered up all the money found in those lands in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Pause. And notice, these were not, nowhere in here were these simple handouts. Um, the whole way through, Joseph exercised wisdom in, yes, giving people what they needed in exchange for something they had to give. So there was an exchange here. And as long as they had money, uh, Joseph gave food for money that people were able to bring. That's the point. But verse 15, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food. And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Give us seed, meaning give us seed to plant for when, uh, so that we can grow as much as possible, maybe even during famine, but especially when the famine ends. Verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. That's our first subsection there. Joseph shows wisdom and mercy in providing for the destitute Egyptians. This, of course, is um, just of a piece with the whole big picture of Joseph as a savior figure here. And Joseph exercises wisdom as he provides salvation from famine. First, it's an exchange for money. 
And then when the people say, our money's gone, give us food. Um, he saw wisdom in sim- not simply handing out the food. That could lead to other problems. Uh, but he said, all right, you do have livestock. I'll give you food for livestock in exchange. So they gave their livestock. But then, again, this is seven total years of famine by the time this is all said and done. They ran out of livestock to sell. And so they say, we have our bodies and our lands. And they initiate the the request. Uh, Joseph, or Zaphonathpaniah, as they would have known him officially, take our bodies and our lands. Let us belong to Pharaoh, in a new sense, uh, in exchange for food. And he accepts their suggestion. So as Richard Belcher puts it, during the worst days of the famine, the Egyptians sell all their livestock and land to Pharaoh to become his servants. The people become tenant farmers to Pharaoh. And Richard Belcher says, these policies seem oppressive, meaning to us. (laughs) They seem oppressive and they seem to take advantage of the people's condition of poverty. That's how a modern Western mind might view this. However, one must be careful not to judge Joseph and these policies by modern sensibilities. Debtors' slavery was common in the context of that day. I might add, it was part of God's law in Israel as well that he allowed. The one-fifth that was to be given to Pharaoh from the crops, with the people keeping four-fifths, was very generous compared to the normal amount in that day of one-third that would be paid in such a situation. Further, the people themselves are very grateful to Joseph because these policies saved their lives. Verse 25. Joseph is not an oppressive overlord, but is considered by the people as a savior. That's a good example of what we need to do often when we read a narrative text in Scripture. And we, because of our culture, might initially want to take it one way, but watch for the cues in the text. Um, For instance, here, the people's response is joy. You've saved our lives. That's how we're supposed to view Joseph in this setting. Um, He has exercised wisdom, though it was a very bad and hard time, in saving the lives of many people. We have other ancient records that let us know often, like an indentured farmer, for instance, would be required to pay between one-half and two-thirds of the produce of his land. So one-fifth isn't that bad in ancient terms. It seems generous, actually. Um, interest rates on loans for farmers' crops were often as high as one-third. And, uh, more to the point, in Genesis, one-fifth is is the same portion of the harvest that Joseph had required before the famine. Remember that? Joseph had prophesied by interpreting Pharaoh's dreams that there would be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. So during the seven years of plenty, the seven good years of harvest, he said... Uh, there'll be bumper crops, God has said, so the people will give one-fifth to Pharaoh to store up for the seven years of famine. So now we're coming back to that one-fifth. Um, but now is a perpetual thing. One-fifth of the harvests will be the Pharaoh's. All right, so now we get to verses 27 through 28, which is much briefer, of course, than this last section, but... There's an intentional contrast here between Egypt and the Israelites. And it might show us a little more why Moses went into such detail about the Egyptians just now. 
verses 27 through 28, while the Egyptians lost their land to Pharaoh, Israel prospered in the land of Goshen. It was sort of the opposite, opposite uh, experience during time of famine for the Egyptians versus the Israelites. Uh, verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. Notice, they didn't lose possessions, they gained possessions in it. And were fruitful, and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. It, it goes to the trouble to mention that Jacob lived 17 years once he got to Egypt, before he died. So Jacob had as much time living near Joseph in Egypt as he had had with Joseph before Joseph's enslavement. Joseph was 17 when he was stolen out of the land of Canaan. And so God, um, it's a fitting bookend, put it that way, in God's providence. Jacob gets 17 more years with Joseph. So, again, Richard Belcher, the Egyptians become indentured servants to Pharaoh, but the family of Jacob lives in freedom and is provided for without becoming servants to Pharaoh. Of course, later we know about the Egyptian slavery when a Pharaoh arises who knows not Joseph in Exodus, but that hasn't happened yet. So in time of famine, there was plenty in Goshen for Israel. That's a theme that would sound familiar to the original audience in Moses' day. When there was plenty in, when there was time of famine, there was plenty in Goshen for Israel. Remember when God later sent plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh. There would be freedom in Goshen from the plague of flies, from the plague on the livestock, from the deadly hail, from the three days of darkness. God made a clear distinction between his special covenant people and the Egyptians. Even when the Egyptians through Pharaoh were blessing Israel in the land, but especially then in Moses' day, when Egypt cursed Israel, God cursed Egypt. Whatever the circumstances, God will stand by his people. And that's sort of the big point here. All right. Now we come to chapter 47, verse 29. And this section really continues through the end of chapter 48, where we see Jacob speaks to Joseph before dying. Jacob speaks to Joseph before dying. First of all, verses 29 through 31 of chapter 47, Jacob gets Joseph's sworn promise to bury him with his fathers in Canaan. Things are good in Egypt, but the focus of the patriarchs is still on the land of promise, the land of Canaan. They don't get their eyes off of that. Verse 29, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Or as we'll mention in a moment, um, as reflected in the Greek Old Testament and then in the New Testament when it quotes it, he bowed himself upon the head of his staff. 
Here we have, just, just like we had way back when Abraham was talking to his servant about getting a bride for Isaac, we have an oath sworn by placing a hand under the thigh. And um, we talked about how placing the hand under the thigh during an oath was solemn because it was at least near the male reproductive organs and was often a euphemism for just that, actually. But the point here is this is a solemn oath concerning God's promised seed that Joseph would not bury Jacob in Egypt. Jacob, even in death, would be identified with the people of God in the land God had promised to them, in the family burial ground in Canaan. This was that important to Jacob that he require an oath of his son Joseph. And he got the oath. And then Israel worshipped on the head of his staff. As Meredith Klein says, insistence on burial in Canaan was a staking of claim to a personal future share beyond imminent death in the promised kingdom of God. This was the patriarchal Old Testament version, you might say, of saying, even in death, this is not the end. Otherwise, why would we care, <laughs> in a sense? Even in death, I am identified with the God of the covenant and what he has promised to us. As I mentioned, um, the uh, Hebrew manuscripts we have from the Middle Ages, the Masoretic text, says here he bowed himself on the head of his bed. But the Greek Old Testament, um, which is quoted under inspiration in Hebrews 11.21, it um, read the same Hebrew consonants differently. So, quick Hebrew lesson, not too deep. Um, Hebrew as many of you may have known and heard, originally had only consonants, no vowels. You just had to know what sounds fit between those consonants. No A-E-I-O-U, none of that. Um, so, sometimes, uh, as in this case, there's a question, um, what vowels originally were in there? So, so, here, you could interpret the same Hebrew consonants to either say bed or staff. Um, as I said, it's, the New Testament seems to confirm, uh, to confirm that Jacob was worshiping, leaning on the head of his staff. Interesting it would, it would say it that way. Jacob had earlier said gratefully to the Lord, with only at my staff I crossed this Jordan when I had to leave the land of promise, but you brought me back. The staff was... Symbolic, you could say, of Jacob's wanderings under God's guidance through all his life. So that may be reflected here. As Jacob reflects on his pilgrimage that is about to end, he worships, leaning on the symbol of that pilgrimage. Then we get to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 48. Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons as Rachel's sons. Let's see that. Verse 1, chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, 
later Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Jacob speaking to Joseph, now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Pause. Who was the firstborn of Joseph? Was it? It was Manasseh, right? It was Manasseh, then Ephraim was the secondborn. But you see here, uh, this is an indication of things to come in the text. Jacob flips the order. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, he, and Simeon was his secondborn, and he mentions them in that order. But he mentions Ephraim before Manasseh. <clears throat> he says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Verse 6. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. There's discussion on whether or not Joseph had additional children. We have no record of that, aside from possibly this in Scripture. Some think Joseph could have had other children that were counted as part of Ephraim and Manasseh's inheritance. Um, I'm not sure. (laughs) That may be what it's saying here. Verse 7, as for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Why is Jacob bringing up Rachel this way at this time? It seems random at first glance. Why is he mentioning Rachel's death on the road to Bethlehem? Well, because he's talking to Rachel's eldest son, Joseph. And remember, Benjamin is the only other son of Rachel. But Jacob had always favored Joseph and Benjamin because they were the only sons of Rachel, his beloved wife whom he actually chose in the beginning, (laughs) in the first place. But he'd been without Rachel for many years. But now he's indicating by by how Jacob is talking about Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, he's indicating that Ephraim and Manasseh will have equal shares in the inheritance to Jacob's other sons, like Reuben and Simeon. So essentially, and we'll see this play out here, Jacob is adopting Joseph's two sons as as Rachel's sons, as his own sons through Rachel. They're not just reckoned as Jacob's grandsons now, but as his sons, which is why we later have in the land of Canaan separate tribal territories for Ephraim and Manasseh, not just Joseph altogether. Right. Well, this continues to play out here. We're not done. At this time, by the way, Manasseh and Ephraim would have been, if, if you follow the timeline in Scripture, they would have been in their 20s someplace. So they weren't little boys anymore. And yet we'll see in a little bit, uh, they apparently are put, in a sense, on Jacob's knees, which would have seemed like a formal sort of adoption ceremony back then. It was symbolic. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, the next chunk of text here is verses 8 through 20. Jacob pronounces the firstborn blessing upon Joseph's two sons. This has been a big theme in Genesis, right? Who's going to get the firstborn blessing? Ishmael or Isaac? Esau or Jacob? Now we have it coming up 
as Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, but not the firstborn period of Jacob. But Reuben has dishonored his father. He slept with his father's concubine. So Reuben is out. Uh, Simeon and Levi, the next two in line, are out because of what they did at Shechem, murdering a bunch of men and, and plundering their women and children and possessions. Judah will be, as we see, will be treated with prominence and he will end up being the Messianic tribe. But who's going to get Jacob's blessing that he would give to his firstborn normally? Well, it goes to Joseph's two sons. Look in verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Now, he may have just been confirming because, as we will see, his eyesight was dim. Uh, it may also just be sort of a formal question and answer for a ceremony. He saw Joseph's sons. He said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Sound familiar in Jacob's story? Isaac, not able to see, not able to tell Jacob from Esau when it's time to give the blessing. I think we're supposed to hear echoes of that. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. <laughs> Joseph, one of the most powerful men in the world, is bowing himself before his father, because he's his father, also because this is... The the one to whom God has given all his promises of redemption. He's acknowledging Jacob's place not only as his father, but as God's chosen seed. And the dispenser of blessing in connection with that. Verse 14. I'm sorry. Um, verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Remember, what does Benjamin mean? It means son of my right hand. What is the right hand about? It's the place of highest honor, greatest power and authority, greatest blessing. So Joseph is approaching his dad who can't see well and he makes sure that Manasseh, his firstborn, comes to, to his dad's right hand. For the highest blessing, the firstborn. He's trying to guide Ephraim toward the left hand. He'll still get blessing, but he's not Joseph's firstborn. That's what's happening. Verse 14. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said... The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand in the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, 
since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Stop there. We mentioned Jacob asked when when he was presented with Joseph's sons, who are these? Again, that echoes uh, what had happened when Isaac asked the question. Jacob came into the tent disguised as Esau, and he said, uh, Isaac had said, who are you? Before Jacob identified himself as Esau. Now, there was deception that time. There's no deception here in this context, and yet there is again reflected God's choice of the unexpected son. The idea that the fact that God is free to to dispense his blessings as he will. Now, in this context, there doesn't there's no hint of Manasseh being cursed or without blessing, as somewhat in the case of Esau. But Ephraim is put before Manasseh. We see this all throughout Scripture, don't we? Uh, David, he's the last of, what, seven, eight boys? I didn't look this up (laughs) just now, but David is the last son after Samuel goes through all of Jesse's other sons looking for the king of Israel that God has chosen. And David's with the sheep because no one thought he would get picked. But God chooses David. God loves to do this to remind us he is not bound by our expectations, our, our traditions, our, what we would think would be natural, normal. In fact, God delights to do that which does not seem natural to us, to remind us he is the supernatural one. And he is free to do as he wills. And he is good when he does that. Major theme here. But it, but it really bothers Joseph. <laughs> That's understating it probably. Joseph feels like he has to correct his father, which wouldn't be something he'd normally do here. But before we get to that, Jacob has some wonderful words here as he pronounces blessing in the name of his God. He has some wonderful words about his God. We, we actually referred to this in an earlier sermon. Verse 15, he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. This reminds us of the theme in Genesis of men who, like Enoch and Noah, were said to have walked with God. And again, though man fell into sin and was cast out of Eden, never more to walk with God in that sense, without sin in the way, never more, I say, until redemption was fully accomplished. Even so, God has a redeemed people and he walks with them this life. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Noah walked with God, it said. Abraham and Isaac walked with God, and so it was for Jacob. Jacob, as we stressed two weeks ago, last time we were in Genesis, 
though his life seemed short and bitter in many ways, Jacob had walked with God. We could say God had walked with Jacob all his life long. Uh, The next thing he says about God, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Again, Psalm 23 comes to our minds that this applies to all God's people. He is the good shepherd who knows his people personally. He knows his sheep. He leads them to the proper pastures. He protects them from all danger. He will take them all the way home to the fold. And the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. As John Currid says, this is clearly the angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord, who is one and the same as Yahweh himself. And he lists a few sample texts, but we could list many. His statement here highlights the work of redemption of God through the angel of Yahweh. Certainly, John Currid says, certainly this is a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's this phenomenon here where an angel, which could also be translated messenger, is spoken of as if he himself is God, and he is the one who dispenses God's blessings. The angel of the Lord in this sense, I would say the second person of the Trinity, who shows up all throughout the Old Testament, um, he is the one, Jacob says, who has redeemed me from all evil. Well, back to the the larger point, choosing the younger over the elder. God's choice through Jacob of the younger over the elder should be familiar to us by now. Abel and Seth over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, now Ephraim over Manasseh. So as we said, God is free to work against the grain of our natural expectations. His gifts are his gifts. They're not something he owes to us. His gifts are his to give as he sees fit. That brings us to the last two verses of our text, verses 21 through 22. Jacob points Joseph to the promised land and Joseph's inheritance there. Not only is Jacob hope fixed on God's promises, he is sure before he dies to point Joseph, whom he now treats as his firstborn, to point Joseph to the same hope. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, literally one shoulder, that I took from the land of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Um, The you there in verse 21 is actually plural. So he's saying, God will be be with you, my family, my sons, and will bring all of you, the people of Israel, again to the land of their fathers, of your fathers. But then it switches to the singular you in verse 22. He speaks just to Joseph. I have given to you, Joseph, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now this puzzles scholars, commentators, because we don't have a record in Genesis of Jacob doing something like this, of Jacob fighting a battle to get territory in Canaan. But apparently it happened in one way or the other. Here's what Andrew Steinman says. Um, Well, he's talking about the fact that, as I would put it, this special plot of land for Joseph 
was at least near Shechem. He says, since mountain slope or shoulder is also the name of the city of Shechem. And since Joseph was eventually interred there, buried there, Joshua 24, 32, that appears to be the place in view in, Joseph, in Jacob's bequest. He could have been referring to the land in Shechem he bought, chapter 33, 18-19, but Jacob mentioned that it was attained through warfare. This suggests instead that the events of chapter 34, 25-29, when Simeon and Levi slaughtered the men of Shechem, are in view. At the time, he denounced his son's violence that took human lives. Thus, it appears that he was ensuring that neither Simeon nor Levi would profit from their brutality. Instead of either of those sons inheriting Shechem, it would be given to Joseph by placing it in Ephraim. However, paradoxically, it would become the the Levitical, Levi, Levi's city of refuge within Ephraim that would serve to protect those who inadvertently took a human life. Um, So, long and short of it is, we don't know exactly what Jacob's referring to in the battle. It might have been connected to when his sons took it upon themselves to, to, as they would have seen it, avenge themselves on their enemies in Shechem. Um, Jacob had already bought some land there, and maybe they had to defend it at some point. Who knows? But it's pretty certain, for a variety of reasons, I won't even list them all, that this is a place near Shechem, if not Shechem itself. It's interesting then that Joshua 24.32 tells us, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. All right, so we've covered the text. Again, this part of Genesis, as it's wrapping things up, it's not always the most riveting section of Scripture for us, but it's important. Again, what's the big idea before we apply it? The big idea was that though Joseph mediates blessing to Egypt, God's blessings promised to Joseph are far better. I think I failed to mention that at the beginning. I'm sorry. Big idea. Though Joseph mediates blessing to Egypt, God's blessings come to Egypt to Joseph, that is. God's blessings promised to Joseph are far better. There's the emphasis on Egypt's salvation earlier on, but their salvation is still just a form of slavery, uh, gentle though it may have been. But for God's people, and for Joseph specifically, he had blessings promised to him for far beyond his own death, even. Blessings that would outlast any temporal blessings in Egypt. So let's apply the text. Three ways. First of all, trust God's preserving hand even in the worst times. I'm getting this from how in time of famine, Egypt became destitute. One of the most powerful nations in that world became destitute. While Israel was sustained and prospered in Goshen. It's a good picture for us of how we must trust God's preserving hand even in the worst times as his people. We don't need to figure out ahead of time how we will 
survive and prosper under the circumstances we see coming at us. We just need to know who our God is. And he has it all worked out ahead of time. Turn to Psalm 33 with me, please. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 22. As an aside, while you're turning there, uh, there was a definite theme this year at both conferences that I attended last week. The first pastor's conference was at the theme of the doctrines of grace for a pastor's heart. And obviously the doctrines of grace have a lot to do with God's sovereignty and his grace. Then G3 in Atlanta, the theme was the sovereignty of God, applied in many different directions. And Psalm 33 here um, is one of the psalms that focuses uh, the most keenly on God's sovereignty and his goodness in his sovereignty. Start in verse 10 with me. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And by the way, what's the New Testament application of that? Peter says, you are a holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, the church. So blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We are God's inheritance. He will have us forever. Verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. As the church, as individual Christians... Don't trust in yourself or be all panicked because you know you can't trust in your own resources when things seem to be way beyond your strength, beyond your ability to handle them, whether it's literal famine or something else. The world can be falling apart and God can still be blessing his people. And we, as we see the decay and rot and imploding of Western culture, for instance, our own nation to some degree already. We need to remember that. God will allow us to go through many hard things in this world. We will experience many of the same outward things as our neighbors. 
Though even there, God is well able to preserve us from that if he sees it's best for us. But God loves his people. And he will not abandon them, even if there is judgment all around. As the psalmist said elsewhere, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come nigh you. That's a principle that God cares for his own, his chosen ones, and protects them. Jesus said, even to those whom he said, some of you will be martyred, some of you will die for me. In the next breath, he says in the New Testament, not a hair of your head shall perish. God cares for us, and we can rest in that. We can rest. We can go to sleep at night. Though naturally there will be times when it's hard. We can trust God. And as Jesus said about his holy nation, the New Testament church, in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me remind you what I believe that means. I I think people get off track here a little bit, though they might still have the general idea right, but literally that's the gates of Hades. Hades was a word that translated in the Greek Old Testament, Sheol, which had a range of of, uh, meaning, a semantic range, but Sheol was in one form or another death. The grave. Sometimes it spoke of, like, uh, the rich man in Hades. That is the place of the wicked dead in torment. But sometimes it had a broader meaning of death and the grave. The death which was brought into our world when the serpent deceived us into rebelling against God. Seduced us into that. But this very phrase, the gates of Sheol or in the Greek Old Testament, the gates of Hades, shows up various places. The idea of the powers of death. People approach the gates of Sheol, crying out to God for help to be rescued from death in a situation, for instance. Jesus' point seems to be that he picks the very worst enemy, the last enemy, in fact, which he will put down, death itself. And he says even the very worst enemy will not stand up against his church. The very powers of death itself will not prevail against the church. In fact, the church will storm death itself and take death's captives away from death. The point being, especially for our purposes right now, Christ will not only preserve his people, but he is taking them to their intended goal of victory. That's for us. Well, second application, as I hurry on here. As we think about Joseph saying, no, not that way, my father. You got it wrong. I'm sorry, but I have to correct even my father here. Manasseh is my firstborn. He should get the firstborn blessing. I love Ephraim too, but Manasseh is the firstborn. Not that way, my father. And Jacob says, I know my son. I know. As we think about that, secondly, second application, trust God's sovereign choices despite your natural expectations. Trust God's sovereign choices despite your natural expectations. As we just said, God will be faithful to us as his people. 
but not in a way which we would naturally predict or choose. He is free in his sovereignty and his grace. We have his grace, but he's free in how he exercises it and in how it plays out. And none of us can predict ahead of time with certainty what God will do. Often we forget this and we do say, well, it's obvious God's going to do this for me. God's going to work in our church this way, and then it doesn't happen. Did God fail to be faithful? No, but God's thoughts are much higher and far beyond our thoughts and his ways above our ways. And he is free in how he dispenses his gifts. He's free in his sovereignty and his grace. So trust God's sovereign choices despite your natural expectations. I don't often do this, but there is a, it's not incredibly lengthy, but somewhat lengthy uh, quote from another preacher around the turn of the 20th century, uh, like 19th to 20th century, named Marcus Dodds. He was quoted in a commentary, and I thought it was so good, I, I should just... Uh, it's basically another preacher preaching, and I'm going to quote him for a minute <laughs> on this text. He says, We meet with these crossed hands of blessing frequently in Scripture. The younger son blessed above the elder, as was needful, lest grace should become confounded with nature, and the belief gradually grow up in men's minds that natural effects could never be overcome by grace, and that in every respect grace waited upon nature. And these crossed hands we meet still. For how often does God, uh, sorry, for how often does God quite reverse our order, and bless most that about which we have less concern? And seem to put a slight on that which has engrossed our best affection. God seems to slight the things that are more, most important to us, he says. It is so, often in precisely the way in which Joseph found it so. The son whose youth is most anxiously cared for, to whom the interests of the younger members of the family are sacrificed, and who is commended to God continually to receive his right-hand blessing, this son seems neither to receive nor to dispense much blessing. But the younger, less thought of, left to work his own way, is favored by God and becomes the comfort and support of his parents when the elder has failed of his duty. And in the case of much that we hold dear, the same rule is seen. A pursuit we wish to be successful in, um, we wish to be successful in, we can make little of and are thrown back from, from continually that is, we don't prosper in something we really hope to be successful. While something else into which we have thrown ourselves almost accidentally prospers in our hand and blesses us. Again and again, for years together, we put forward some cherished desire to God's right hand and are displeased like Joseph that still the hand of greater blessing should pass to some other thing. Does God not know what is oldest with us, what has been longest at our hearts and is dearest to us? Certainly he does. I know it, my son. I know it. He answers to all our expostulations. It is not because he does not understand or regard your predilections, your natural and excusable preferences, that he sometimes refuses to gratify your whole desire and pours upon you blessings of a kind somewhat different from those you most earnestly covet. He will give you, listen to this, God, he will give you the whole 
that Christ hath merited. He'll give you everything. But for the application and distribution of that grace and blessing, you must be content to trust him. You may be at a loss to know why he does no more to deliver you from some sin. Or why he does not make you more successful in your efforts to aid others. Or why, while he so liberally prospers you in one part of your condition, you get so much less in another that is far nearer your heart. But God does what he will with his own. And if you do not find in one point the whole blessing and prosperity you think should flow from such a mediator as you have, you may only conclude that what is lacking there will elsewhere be found more wisely bestowed. And is it not a perpetual encouragement to us that God does not merely crown what nature has successfully begun, that it is not the likely and the naturally good that are most blessed, but that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. End of quote. So I would just add briefly to that. Don't be like Peter in Matthew 16. Don't be like Peter correcting the Lord himself and thus refusing God's best gifts. Remember Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Trust God's sovereign choices despite your natural expectations. Of all things, the cross of Jesus Christ is not the plan we would have come up with. But that's how God works. And if we refuse what seems unnatural and wrong to us, and if we tell God, you got it wrong, we'll miss everything. Third and last, treasure God's best gifts the most. Treasure God's best gifts the most. The patriarchs treasured the land of Canaan because it represented for them something even greater. It represented the eternal inheritance which God has prepared for all who love him. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they treasured God's promised land more than all the riches of Egypt. They held to solid joys and lasting treasure, as the hymn puts it. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 21 These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Be like Jacob and like Joseph. Treasure God's best, best gifts the most. Don't just treasure God for how he's making your life easy right now. You'll be a fickle follower of God if you do that. Think about his best gifts. Sonship. Forgiveness. Justification in Christ. Eternal life. With God and all his people. Treasure God's best gifts the most. And don't miss his best gifts. By focusing on the lesser. That's why many people struggle with. And I'm glad that most here do not. But many people in this land struggle with church attendance. Even if they claim the name of Christ. Because they're so fascinated with lesser blessings of God. And enjoying those while they have time. They haven't treasured the greater things. They don't see what should draw them to worship with God's people week after week. But we can do that in many ways. We can treasure God's lesser gifts and reject the greater ones or just not think about them. But many people do that. Many people miss God's best gifts because they don't know the Lord at all yet. There was a woman in Jesus' day who knew the story of Jacob and how he had given a plot of land as an inheritance to Joseph. But maybe like some of you today, it was just a story to her about a great man who lived long ago and fathered a great nation. Uh, This lady even took pride in the fact that, that the well she used for her daily needs, that's the well Jacob gave to our people on this very spot. I'm connected to somebody important. You may hear the story of Jacob and Joseph and, oh, they were great men. We should be like them. And that's where it stops. But ironically, as the woman at the well had a focus on lesser things like water and land and godly ancestors, she wasn't prepared to receive the very thing Jacob's inheritance should have pointed her to. The great inheritance for God's people is God's Holy Spirit given to people as living water. Forgiving their sins, quenching their spiritual thirst, granting them eternal life, being reconciled to God. John 4, verse 5, with this I close. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I'll stop there. Treasure God's best gifts the most. You may have a lot which God has given you. You may have a good family. You live in a good land. You live in a wonderful time in history with wonderful technology and blessings materially. You may have a lot from God. But until you take the living water from him, you've missed the point. God seeks out sinners like you and me. Not so that we can simply have a comfortable life now, but so that we can know him and have our thirst in our souls quenched. And if you've missed that, you've missed everything. But the good news is, the scripture says in the last book of the Bible, let him who thirsts come and take the water of life without cost. It's free. We don't get to tell God how he dispenses his gifts. But praise God, he does give living water as a free gift. We need to humble ourselves, come to him his way through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the only savior of sinners. Turn away from our own way of living, our own thoughts, our own sins in his sight, and come to him for living water. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your help today in speaking and listening. Help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. May your word find its mark for which it was sent out from your very mouth. We ask that saints and sinners alike will understand your gifts that you give to them and will rejoice in those gifts as they ought and not try to correct you when it's not the way we thought it should be or would be. Help us to trust you and thus be happy as your people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, people, Lord, that you have chosen as your inheritance. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.